Well, it is good to be back with you, and I thank you for the welcome that you've given me this morning. And I thank, too, the entire staff and Mary who have been steering this ship for the last uh, nine weeks through an earthquake, a hurricane, and torrential rains. So I think they get some kind of um, FEMA award, or I'm not sure what it is. As many of you know, I am coming back now part-time from maternity leave, and I will be still part-time for a few weeks coming in through about the middle of October. So I'm on email, but I'm only checking it once a day. It's a lot less frequent, but it's good to be starting that, that coming back. Eventually, it happens to all of us. In a conversation with someone who comes from a different religious background, at a family gathering, for me, it was in a class at seminary. You've been describing your convictions, your values, your ethics. The person you're talking to is smiling and nodding. Sure, sounds familiar. And then you get the question. Or, depending on the tone, the accusation. Well, why would anyone be a good person if they didn't believe they would be rewarded or punished afterward? How could you possibly be ethical, be moral, without the fear of God? Now, I can understand why, getting this question, you might be tempted to just throw up your hands, mutter that no one understands you and all these people are ignorant, and walk away. But my goodness, that doesn't sound very sociable, does it? Nor, frankly, does it sound particularly ethical. We really try to avoid calling people ignorant here. It certainly doesn't sound likely to change anyone's mind. This platform is intended to help you answer the question instead of walking away, and perhaps get a little more insight into what's behind the question, what the person might be asking. First, I want to take a look at what they're not asking, The question is often boiled down to a simple statement, one that conveniently relates to the title of a best-selling book by Greg Epstein, the humanist chaplain at Harvard, Good Without God. In other words, can you be good without God? We'll see what Epstein says about that question in a moment, but first I want to say that I think it's not actually the question being asked, at least not the way I have heard it. What the question is really asking is whether or not we can be good without a particular kind of God, a God that watches what we're doing, judges it, and then sends us one place or another, depending on how it goes. There are plenty of folks that do believe in a God or gods like that, but it doesn't describe everyone's understanding of God, not by a long shot. So what the question is really asking, I think, is, well, how can you be good without my God? which, when you come right down to it, is so often what people, what we mean when we talk about a God. We mean our God or your God or whatever specific God we do or do not believe in. However, that's a topic for a different platform. Actually, it was in the spring, so you just listen to it online. Right now, the question is how you can be good without this specific kind of judging God. Greg Epstein, the Harvard chaplain I mentioned earlier, would say that this question isn't a valid one, and he has a point. That question, he writes in the introduction to his book, does not need to be answered. It needs to be rejected outright. 
To suggest that one can't be good without belief in God is not just an opinion, a mere curious musing. It is a prejudice, end quote. And it's fair for Greg or for you to feel that way, but it gets us back to the walking away answer rather than engaging in more conversation. And the truth is, whether or not the question is a valid one, it's certainly one that's frequently asked. In fact, the idea that we can't be good without God is used as an argument for the very existence of God. Plenty of theologians and philosophers have tackled this, but my favorite version actually comes from a novelist, although she has some impressive credentials as a philosopher, too. Rebecca Neuberger Goldstein, who, as it happens, is the American Humanist Association's 2011 Humanist of the Year, wrote a really wonderful novel called 36 Arguments for the Existence of God, a Work of Fiction. (laughs) I recommend the whole book to you. It's about love and faith and choice and family, and it's all set in academia, which is painted really accurately from what I've seen. And later in a Hasidic community, I can't attest to the accurateness, but it's certainly interesting. But the part I'm going to quote from comes from the appendix of the novel, where each of those 36 arguments are laid out and then refuted. Before I go on, I want to just note something that became quite clear to me as I read those arguments and refutations. They were fun to read in the way philosophy and logic is often fun, and the flaws were well presented. For me, though, the arguments and their refutations were really evidence that you can't possibly reduce faith and belief or non-belief to logical terms. Arguments for or against the existence of God are unlikely to sway people on any part of the faith spectrum. The whole point of faith, after all, is that you have it despite the evidence, not because of it. I don't think the arguments for the existence of God pose any challenge to a non-believer, nor do I think the refutations pose any challenge to a believer. However, the argument surrounding morality was an interesting one. It's argument number 16, the argument from moral truth. It goes like this, and I'm quoting. One, there exist objective moral truths. Genocide, slavery, etc. are wrong. Two, these objective moral truths are not grounded in the way the world is, but rather in the way the world ought to be. Three, The world itself, the way it is, the laws of science that explain why it is that way, cannot account for the way the world ought to be. Four, the only way to account for morality is that God established morality from two and three. So logically from two and three. Five, God exists, end quote. That's argument. (laughs) The refutation, or flaw pointed out, goes all the way back to Plato and a particularly famous argument about morality from the Euthyphro, which I can't ever seem to say quite right, Euthyphro. Essentially, Plato asks Euthyphro, his friend, who believes that morality comes from the gods, why the gods picked what they picked as morally acceptable. Either the gods had no reason for picking which things were moral, which would mean that we can't really trust that they are moral, or the gods picked them because they are essentially moral which means that their morality, their moralness, if you will, doesn't depend on the gods picking them, but exists independent of the gods, which means that we can be moral whether or not God or gods exist. It's the kind of engaging philosophical thinking that I enjoy delving into now and then, and I think it does a pretty good job of explaining why the existence of moral truths doesn't necessitate the existence of God, 
although it certainly doesn't refute the possibility of God either. But it also gives insight into those who think that morality must come from God, that it must exist as mandated by supernatural agents rather than resting within us. Well, if it does come from within us, what does that mean? How can we recognize morality if we don't follow a set of rules? And, bringing us back to the first articulation of this question, why would we even have it if we aren't fearful of punishment? Sociologists, psychologists, and anthropologists have done some fascinating work in this field, looking at the evolutionary basis of morality and ethics. What you find is a mix of ethical behavior that seems to arise from our instincts for self-preservation and ethical behavior that comes from what looks very much like an instinct for compassion. Scientists go back and forth with each other over whether compassion is really about self-preservation after all. For instance, whether we have evolved to be compassionate because compassion is noticed and preferred by potential mates, thus leading to the continuation of some kind of compassion gene. And maybe that's the case. I like to think that we have an instinct for compassion just by itself. And certainly, I think and live my life as though that is the case now, regardless of what evolutionary process we went through to get to it. James Wood echoed this point in a great article in The New Yorker where he looked at secularist writers on morality and meaning. Human morality, he wrote, can be explained without being explained away. What most scientists seem to tell us is that humans and our closest non-human relatives do have a kind of inner morality hardwired into our brains. Again, this doesn't refute the possibility that God or gods were involved in the hardwiring, but it doesn't necessitate it either. In my opinion, human morality is a pretty miraculous thing, and that need not be a supernatural statement. I suppose the question that follows, then, is why we would bother to listen to that inner morality, God-given or evolved or both, if we don't believe that life is a test, with God handing out grades at the end. Greg Epstein addresses that question in the third chapter of his book, which he titles, Why Be Good Without God? There's a pattern. There's how to be good without God, why be good without God. And perhaps it really is the more interesting question. Epstein's answer, essentially, is that we all search for meaning in our lives. And for humanists, and I would add for many who don't call themselves humanists, meaning can be found in our attempt to make life better for others, to make life better in general. We are good because it makes us feel good, not only in a superficial way like the warm fuzzy when we volunteer at a soup kitchen, but in a significant, satisfied way, like being able to look back at a life and feel we have done our best the whole time through, that we have lived life well. Perhaps hardwired in along with that inner moral voice is a desire to follow the voice. Perhaps we simply are smart enough to realize that a life lived ethically will help to create a world that's better for everyone, including ourselves. It's not a particularly fancy answer, but it feels accurate to me. It feels like my lived experience, the reason that I try to behave ethically in my own life. And others agree. Kai Nielsen, who wrote the much less accessible and my guess is less popular, Ethics Without God. Actually, it's Ethics Without God and then the bestseller, Good Without God, which makes me think maybe we should change our name to the Washington 
good old society, <laughs> increased popularity. Anyway, he says much the same thing as Epstein in slightly more complicated language, that humanists find the grounding for their morality within their attempt to give life meaning. He expands the argument a bit and focuses on how we feel. Secular morality, Nielsen writes, starts with the assumption that happiness and self-awareness are fundamental human goods and that pain and suffering are never desirable in themselves, end quote. Our moral choices, then, begin with these realities in our own lives. In some ways, interestingly, the source of our knowledge of morality in a humanistic or secular sense sounds not so far off from the source of religious morality. Think back to that famous argument of Plato's, his conversation with Euthyphro. Euthyphro bases his morality on the gods, saying something is moral because the gods say it is. Plato, remember, rejoins the gods must have a reason for saying something is moral, which is that it is moral in and of itself. Therefore, the endorsement of the gods is unnecessary to assure its morality. What stands, though, what, what stands out, though, is that both Plato and Euthyphro believe in the essential existence of morality. And I think Epstein and Nielsen do, too. They also believe in the importance of morality, particularly in our search for life's meaning. Indeed, the link between meaningfulness and morality came up again and again in my reading, leading me to think that maybe the next platform I need to write is something like The Meaning of Life, because I really enjoy giving myself those easy topics to chew on. There's another way Nielsen and Epstein are similar, though. They both located their thoughts about humanist morality within the context of the alternative, within the context of religious morality. When Epstein wraps up his answer that humanists are moral because of their hope to create meaning, he moves on to consider the alternate answer, the idea that people are in fact motivated to make ethical choices because of a belief in God, perhaps a God that judges and punishes. And here is where he loses me a little bit. Epstein, who in his defense is clearly writing a book intended to sell humanism to a broader audience, doesn't seem to find traditionally religious motivation for ethical behavior to be acceptable. He launches into an argument against the existence of God, talking about how the kind of God you need to really be motivated by it can't possibly exist, and any other kind of God, for instance, a God that doesn't hand out grades at the end of life, isn't really a God at all, which would be news to many of my friends. Epstein does talk about pluralism at the end of his book and speaks about the need for humanists, atheists, and agnostics to be involved in interfaith coalitions, to have basic religious literacy, and to work in cooperation with those of other faiths. You know everything that Mary said really more eloquently last week in her platform. But I have to say that as someone who works actively in those interfaith coalitions, as someone who went to a Christian seminary, someone who knows an awful lot of people who ground their ethics in their religious lives, well, I wouldn't want to quote Epstein to my friends. Any more, I guess, than I'd want them to quote some of the more conservative religious commentators to me. Actually, it was a piece about religious and secular foundations for morality that made me want to explore this topic in the first place, and in particular, the end of the piece, which caught my eye because of its pretty clear denunciation of a religious grounding for ethical stances. 
It was part of the New York Times really great series called The Stone, which builds itself as a forum for contemporary philosophers. Perhaps not surprisingly, contemporary philosophers seem to be particularly interested in humanism, naturalism, atheism, and other forms of what I would call non-traditionally religious life stances. So I read it quite often. This particular posting was from Anant Boletsky, a professor at Quinnipiac and Tel Aviv universities. She titled the piece, The Sacred and the Humane. And the fact that I even noticed it when it was posted online two days after my daughter was born speaks to its arresting nature. I didn't read it then, however. <laughs> Set it aside. Bookmarked it. Essentially, Boletsky argues that ethical stances around human rights can be personally grounded in either a religious framework, the idea that human dignity comes from the sacredness of the human spirit as imparted by God or gods, or in a secular framework, for her, the idea that human dignity comes from, quote, Aristotelian virtue and natural justice or the Kantian categorical imperative, end quote. She goes on, though, to say that while we might find either the religious or secular to be our own grounding for work in human rights, only the secular philosophical version is really acceptable. Quote, I dare say that religion, even when indirectly in the service of human rights, is not really working for human rights, she writes, and she means it. Boletsky argues that so long as secular and religious people are working together and agreeing, it's fine for them to do so and to have interesting theoretical arguments about the foundation of their work. But when they disagree, she would say, then the secularists should always win, and those who ground their work and their ethics in religious feeling should step aside, because they can't possibly be working for, really be working for humanity when they're following what they consider to be divinely commanded guidelines. This is the part where I start to think that maybe all the philosophers should find a nice house somewhere to argue together with each other while the rest of us go on about our lives, making dinner, taking care of our children, and fixing the world. Boletsky's argument against morality with religious grounding is provocative and interesting to think about, and, I would argue, as potentially destructive as the argument against morality without religion. Do we really want to disinvite a majority of the world from the conversation about morality and ethics? Even if we disagree on both the ethical choices we suggest and the grounding that gets us there, do we actually want to say they're not invited to the conversation? Because here's the thing. What would the conservative Christians disinviting the atheists and the secularists disinviting the traditionally religious, pretty soon it's not going to be much of a party at all. Actually, that may be happening already. David Brooks, the political commentator who might just be the conservative writer most frequently lauded by progressive readers, <laughs> wrote this past week in the New York Times about a study of young Americans' morality. What the study found, he wrote, was, and I quote, not so much that these young Americans are living lives of sin and debauchery, which is great, at least no more than you'd expect from 18 to 23-year-olds, What's disheartening is how bad they are at thinking and talking about moral issues, end quote. Essentially, the young people in this study couldn't talk about morality. They couldn't identify moral situations. They didn't have the right words to describe how they'd make a moral decision. 
and frequently they just shrugged and said it was up to everybody to figure it out for themselves. Now, while that might sound a lot like the inner moral voice I talked about earlier and we sang about in Peter Bishop's song, there's a key difference. The inner moral voice, the one that was either evolutionarily cultivated or placed there by God, the whole point of that voice is that it's generally the same among people. It doesn't just say, eh, to each your own. It calls for a sense of shared morality, the ethics of the community as heard by each individual. As Brooks writes, in most times and in most places, the group was seen to be the essential moral unit, a shared religion defined rules and practices. Cultures structured people's imaginations and imposed moral disciplines. But now more people are led to assume that the free-floating individual is the essential moral unit. Morality was once revealed, inherited, and shared, but now it's thought of as something that emerges in the privacy of your own heart, end quote. Now, the privacy of our own hearts may sound like a lovely place, but I agree with Brooks that it really shouldn't be the locus of our ethical grounding. If it were, I wouldn't blame the person who asked how anyone could be good without God. If the two choices are that we are accountable to God or we are accountable only to ourselves, then frankly, I'd hope that most of the world chose God because I think the results would be better. Not surprisingly, perhaps, I don't think those are the only two choices. I think there's a third choice, one that I hope can be a source of common ground for all of us. Because no matter where we find the foundation of our ethics, I believe we are accountable to each other for the results. And so, I would suggest, we are best served when we turn to each other as we seek the foundation as well. Brooks says that morality used to be found in a shared religion or culture. As we move into a pluralistic world, exactly the kind of world Mary described last week, We need to find ways to both acknowledge the different groundings of our morality and still talk with each other enough that we can find consensus. Thinking about the American teenagers in that study who didn't even have the language to describe moral choices, I can't help but feel that our tendency to put our own morality in silos has served them poorly. Could it be that they don't have the language because we are so reluctant to engage in conversation with those whose grounding is different from ours? In other words, no one should be disinvited from the conversation. If the foundation for your ethical values has nothing to do with God, you'd better not walk away when someone asks how you can possibly be good. You'd better tell them. If the foundation for you has everything to do with God, you'd better not walk away when someone asks how you can possibly work for human dignity. You'd better tell them. And it sounds as though we'd all better start telling our teenagers, whatever our foundation, so that someone has talked to them about morality. Actually, I think the need to talk with each other is about more than just building a common language. I think it can be about building a common morality, about creating, again, the shared culture to which David Brooks refers. Of course, it won't be the homogenous culture of the past, if that ever really existed, which I tend to doubt. But we may be able to create, or perhaps just discover, shared ethical values within our pluralistic setting. 
If we are accountable to each other for the results of our ethics, it makes sense that we should seek as much agreement as possible, as a congregation, as a society, as a world community. I have no pretensions that we'll agree on everything, but my guess is many of us may come closer on the big things than we realize. We gather into religious congregations and other groups because we crave not just warmth, but also shared understanding, a place to try out what we believe to be guided in our principles. It's here in congregations like this that we make sure that our inner moral voice matches other people's. How wonderful it would be if we could go out and find that this community's moral voice matches other communities' moral voices, even when the philosophers tell us we couldn't possibly have anything in common. We can, of course, be good without God. We can also be good with God. What's most important is not the with or without part. Mostly, I hope we remember to get to the good part. And the next time someone asks you the dreaded question, keep talking. Talk about the compassion instinct we find in humans around the world. Talk about your own instinct toward compassion, the way you feel when you do something wonderful for someone else. Talk about meaning in your life and the ways that choosing carefully and well expand your sense of what your life means, what life means in general. Quote philosophers if you must. Sometimes they are pretty fun. But mostly talk about what you feel. And don't forget to ask them what they feel. That is, after all, the ethical thing to do.